Hi, I'm Jim Drew with cbmstuff.com, and you're listening to the Scene World Podcast. Hey, it's the Scene World Podcast. I'm AJ, and he is Jörg in that off center, right. off center picture over there. Right. Um, how's it going? This is uh, Scene World. Yeah, good, good, good. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. So in a, <laughs> in a minute, we will talk to Chris Abbott and his book, Little Book of Computer Ships, Volume 1 till 4. So... So that is in one second, or a little more than more, a little more than a second. That's that's once we get done with the news. Right. So news. Clap my hands. <clears throat> well, Up around two times. For for once, for once, um, I guess most people heard about the nostalgia nerd. I'm a subscriber myself. Yes. And uh, he actually uh, reached out to us via Twitter a few weeks ago. And by the time you are listening to this, he will have released a video on YouTube about the Commodore Brand mystery. Mm. And um, our parts of Commodore Italy and the, and the pet phone yeah. is in it. Including my terrible um, unboxing snippets. And my terrible review. (laughs) And parts of the podcast interview. Mm -hmm. So thanks a lot for, um, well, approaching us and us being a part of this video. We're we're a reference. We've become a reference. Right, right, right. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, cool. Well, I mean, there are not many people or publications in, in in English that have so much info. I think we are the only ones that actually had a review unit mm-hmm. and an interview. One review unit that, that Jörg had to unbox and then mail to me to review. Right. Instead of two. Yeah. It's true. But, yeah. But then you had to pay the return shipping. And yeah, don't even talk to, to don't even talk to us about sending it back, because that's <laughs> a whole other story. That's just mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Right, well, let's not even get into that. Alrighty. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So that's that, and we will link to that. And um, other news, unfortunately, sad news. ASL, a Polish coder that was known for coding Rigor, which is a 3D tunnel shooter on the Commodore 64 that unfortunately never released. He died oh, recently. Shit. Yeah. Nothing is known yet why, but he did. And I actually was in touch with him like over 10 years ago, asking him about completion of the game. And he mm-hmm. said like, no, the discs are not anymore. So there will never be any more than the demo. Um, well, you can get it from games that were in 64 if you want yeah, to. Yeah, we've gotten to the demo. age where we're watching people uh, start vanishing, and it's not. I don't like it. Well, I mean, it depends if it's on old age or if it's illnesses. Mm-hmm. Like Derbyshire Ram, he, he died at 70 yeah, because right, of cancer. Right. 
Right, but I'm saying, like, you know, we're now, you know, in the roughly 40-ish age bracket, and we're watching more people go than we would have if we were 25 or even 30. True. The older we get, the more people that we that we know and have known tend to um, pass away, and it's um, it's, it's a but, shame. But um, the Z64 Legends page also has people that died in the early 90s in their <laughs> 20s. Or so. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so oh, absolutely. then, you know, you have things like accidents and stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, good yeah. Lord, yeah. But, That's of course, yes, you're right. I mean, the remember, more your age progresses, the more yeah. people die that you remember, had to deal with. In remember the... Scope back in, like, the late 90s, you know. He was, you know, in his, in his 20s, I think. You know, just a freak accident. I remember that being, like, a... I remember that being a huge thing when it happened, you know, because because a lot of us had had contact with him and he was, you know, kind of a, an up and coming graphics guy. And just. Well, can happen. Yeah. Or or um, um, hmm. Shane Fell, who's uh, um, a member of Style, who uh, flipped his car and disappeared and is still missing. Ooh. No, no, nobody knows what happened to him. Uh, there's podcasts. There's um, all sorts of stuff about it. There's a Facebook group to try to find him. He's been gone for about 20 years now, I think. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, stuff like that, you know, happened back then, but it happens more and more the, the older you get and the True. older the people around you get. True. I'm one of the youngest. Mm-hmm. Commodore 64 users. Yeah. Because um, in 1990, I was just eight. And that is why people often look at me and say, like, you grew up with the Commodore 64, you are too young. Yeah. yeah. So I started using it when the commercial gaming market was on the decline already. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say I'd probably fit in that same thing because I'm, you know, I'm only a couple of years older than you. I got uh, mine. Not really. Not really. You, you, you had things like BBSs and stuff. <laughs> All those experiences I didn't have anymore. So BBSs were in action up until the you know early 2000s, 2005 or so. Yeah, yeah. But as a German kid, yeah, with no connections to the cracking scene. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even know that existed. I kind of got into it on the tail end, uh, around like you know ninety three, ninety four. That was sort of my intro to the the BBS scene. Yeah, so there's still a lot. There's still a huge difference between you and me. Hmm. Um. Anyway. Right. So other news is uh, Tronimal just said on Twitter that he is considering doing. Um, a pre-order release of the Museum on the Card Game Boy cartridge. Mm. Cool, cool. Because he did the sound card for this, uh, the sound, um, well, the music, the music for that yeah, cartridge. Right, and right. Um, and also the um, Digital Retro Park that did the Museum on a Card announced there are still some units left. So if you want to buy Terry Up, Okay. Of course, I don't think there will be a third batch, to be honest. Um, yeah. 
Okay, okay. So hope by the time you you hear this that there are still some units left. Otherwise, I will edit out this news piece. <laughs> um, I yeah. got a piece of a, a piece of kit right here um, that uh, is being worked on by a guy named James Johnston. Uh, it's called the Meatloaf 64, mm-hmm. which is a um, a Wi-Fi modem and a an IEC serial drive multi-device emulator i don't know what that means um i i mean there's there's stuff you know like um so so it's you know it's, it's a regular wi-fi modem for you know telnetting the bbs is like you know as you can do um you can have you can multi emulate multiple iec devices um it can um it can work as a cassette interface it can be a you do sd card stuff uh virtual printers and plotters um um uses fast loaders there's all kinds of crap that it can do um and it would it'll be compatible with the 64 128 vic 20 and plus four for some reason when it launches and we'll put a link to learn about it i mean i mean it was mostly um, successful in the East Europe, mm-hmm. like Romania and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But I, I always thought the Plus Four had a different kind of. It didn't have the IEC. It had a different kind of uh, interface. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, alrighty. But either way, we'll put a link to where you can learn about that and see exactly what it does and how it works and whatnot That's right. because could be something that people are interested in. Nice, nice. Alrighty. So if that is all, then that jumped and you we are talking to Chris Abbott again. The last time we spoke to him while we were also talking to um to Rob Hubbard about his projects but today we are talking with chris abbott himself about your project chris and that's actually a book about sound chips uh four books no four books you see actually but today we are only talking about volume the first one one, yes yeah yeah in fact it was it was it was written as one book but then it, it it kind of expanded so it ended up as four Hmm. There are too much sound chips in the world to yeah. to, to it scramble was, it all into one. <laughs> it was more that the each each book um, describes sound chips um, from a historic range of dates, like 1977 to 1981, but also features games that have those sound chips in them. And what hmm. what was happening was um, the space that was being given to the games grew and grew. And ah. that's why that's why it, if you took all the information about the 88 sound chips across the set, then it would fit into one volume. But you add the games to um, to demonstrate what the music was, what they sounded like and um, put the QR codes and YouTube links in. And suddenly oh. you've got two games per page. And uh, the first volume has 400 games covered with mini reviews and links. Um uh, and that's just for things like the AY chip and the Atari Pokey and the TIA and uh, 
some more obscure chips like the one in the Ballyastrocade and uh, the one in the Odyssey 2, which was a really oh. terrible chip. Hmm. So everything basically without the SID chip, because that is coming 82. In and volume, said, yeah, in volume two, it's the first entry in volume two, exactly. which is 82 to 86. And uh, the heroes in that one are the Nintendo Entertainment System, the Famicom, and the, the, the SID and the ST and the Amiga. Makes sense, makes okay. sense, yeah. And lots and lots of arcade machines, because that's when... It's in that date, date period when um, Marble Madness came out featuring the Yamaha YM2151, which Just was in, in a yeah. load of machines. That was in Outrun, that yeah. was in Afterburner, that was in Temple of Doom. Yeah. Although, I, 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 think, I think the system has a name. It's called Sega 16, if I'm not mistaken. That's, um, that should be the name of the arcade system used at that time for Afterburner and others. I th- yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a pre-16, um, and then there were lots of the 32 and the 16A and B and C and whatever. Um, right, right. And uh, but they so uh, but the YM2151 was featured across uh, across a wide variety of machines from all manufacturers. That was an eight-channel FM chip, and um, that that's uh, that. That gives us a gallery of games for that chip that goes from Marble Madness when it was first created, and Atari had an exclusive one-year license on that to give them a head start. Uh, but it, it, that chip was used into the 90s. Um, but they, they had, they, uh, from a very early point, they found out that the drums were terrible and that they had to um, add in sample drums on another chip um, in order to augment that. And the, the multi-chip approach in the in the arcades just grew and grew until you've got some you've got some arcade machines around about ninety two that have four sound chips in mm-hmm. two of them. Occasionally they have one that's accidental because they've used, for instance, the Sega Drive Mega Sega the Mega Drive graphics chip, which has the Sega Master System sound chip integrated. Right, the Extra Instruments one, yeah. Yeah, the the SN seven six four eight nine compatible. The one right. that was in the BBC and the ColecoVision and um, uh, a lot of other stuff, but not as many things as the AY3, which is in Volume 1, and which was in the Spectrum Amstrad um, mm. in television, which is where it first turned up. Um, and there are, there, are not, there are not many games for the Mega Drive slash uh, Genesis utilizing both sound chips at the same time. Not um, that many. Space Harrier did, apparently. And Batman, which is my personal favorite. <laughs> and yeah. um, when I interviewed uh, Tommy Tedarico that I hope to release soon, he said, like, I use it too. <laughs> so he, he felt like defending himself, but, uh, but in fact, many didn't. Um, but anyway, before we go into the depths of Soundship, perhaps we should start as we never had this chance, uh, Chris. How did it all start with you and the retro craze? And you know, being into computers and stuff. I mean, that must have been one one ago when you were young and stuff. Well, the first arcade machine that I that I remember seeing was Boot Hill, which was that um, cowboy shooting game, and that that plays a death march when you die. Mm-hmm. And I remember mm-hmm. finding that hysterical, hysterically funny back in when I was like seven. 
Ah, and um, okay. but that, that that sound chip is out of out of scope of this because it was discrete um, circuitry. And so we, we start with the TIA in 1977 and go from there. So, um, but um, yeah, started though. It was always um, exotic seeing arcade machines when you used to know you didn't have 10 P's, so you just stood in front of them and pretended you were playing during the attract sequence. I'm sure we all did that when we were poor. Yes. They didn't make any sounds or music during the attract sequence, which is annoying. Yeah, except me, because when, when I was young in poor Germany, they forbid arcade machines and pinball machines for people younger than 18. Yes, so I, I never had this. So I never had a, sh a chance to to um, actually embrace that when I was young. They, they, actually, um, they actually came out with this law in 85 when I was just three years old. And why, why was that a law? To protect the youth, because they thought that arcade games and stuff are um, violent and things. But, but, but you're talking about pinball and stuff too, though. Well, I mean, they would be in the same location, so... Well, in, in England, they banned fruit machines in... Uh, they, they put an 18 limit on them, uh, except at the seaside, where certain machines, I think, under a certain amount of... Uh, under a certain amount of cost could be used at the seaside but not in general so you, you had like 18 year old arcades coin ups could be anywhere you used to get them in cafes and stuff interesting hmm. a different um, situation interesting well it is in it it is everywhere i guess but uh, they were always it was always exotic seeing them um it, it was uh six years between seeing the first coin op and getting the first um uh, atari 400 oh uh, the atari 400 was the that, first computer okay uh, that i had yes i mean if you don't count like a binatone pong machine <laughs> played pong. <laughs> first, um and yes the the atari i loved and um Met the Commodore 64 a bit later when it had come down in price long enough for my friends to buy one. Um, I think I saw I think I saw a Spectrum before that because my I was at school and a friend had one. So yeah, the ZX Spectrum was um, a big competitor to the Commodore 64 in UK. Yeah, but now the the Atari that I had actually had had um, while not. It didn't have the SID chip. It did have a pokey. decent, yeah. It ha had decent audio. It wasn't terrible. It was it was underused and grungy. Yes, yes. Um, they 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 have the uh, the the TIA and the pokey both have this thing called distortion, where they mm -hmm. take a square wave and then they they vary the period and spacing of the um, the period and spacing of the square waves to to make a grinding sounds or engine mm -hmm. sounds or just uh, regular sounds yeah. um, that, that's, they were both J minus chips so that's uh, hmm. um, that's where that went yeah that, no, that, that was released in 1979 but um, it didn't it didn't really hit critical mass until 82 when they um, when third party third party software started and the price came down Right now, now grungy, uh, as as you mentioned, is how I often describe the SID chip. It's got a really kind of a, 
you know, I, I always loved like the, the, the really heavy, like kind of bass farts and stuff that it could do. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, but, it's got a much, it's got a much wider frequency range than some of the other chips. Because right. It's got, but, uh, it's got a 16 bit frequency register and a lot of the others have. But like you just mentioned with the Atari, it was yeah. kind of underused until the third parties came in. Cause if you look at the original, like the early Commodore stuff, it was mostly just bleeps and bloops. Or, or just you know your noise and not yeah. really like like really good music until until third parties started coming in and and figuring out what it could do yeah definitely it was it was there was some some complacency i think but also it's because no one knew any better mm-hmm. they they there, there'd be no one to show the way that and set the standards and that's that's where people like um people like paul norman came in and uh, yes. showed the things could things could be you could do an original film soundtrack on these yeah ships. yeah and um, um, yeah that but the interesting that you talk about is the first game the first commercial game that really utilized the uh filter of the um of the early chip was actually alien and the composer was paul clancy that was eighty four. Eighty four. Eighty four. Yeah. I that... don't know. I'm, no, I, I think um, David Dunn was using the the chip with the filter around the same time, possibly before Aliens. Hmm. Um, yeah, but you're right that Paul Norman didn't use it. Um, no one in eighty three was using it. Yeah. And that and that comes partially because it wasn't really, uh, as from what I understand, the SID wasn't all that well documented because it was rushed. So. Yeah. Indeed. You know, like, like to this day, there is still I've seen some debate on how many voices it actually has, you know, and it's like, well, we, we it, it's, you know, 40 years old. We should have figured this out by now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a there. There are they, they'd originally planned for it to have so many more voices. But uh, yeah, yeah. Plus reduction and time. Ran I out. think it was mostly time. Yeah, because it, it was a uh, uh, Yanis that. uh that designed it. Bob he, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he had like like sixteen voices in, 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 like planned for it, and then they were like, no, 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 you need to get this thing ready by by the CES show, and 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 so it was like, all right, well, we'll just throw in what we got. Right. Yeah. And uh, they, they, uh, there was one there was one show where they took a, a a SID synthesizer that had I think three or four SID chips in it, and each each SID chip was doing one voice, but with three oscillators. Um, that that right. was that because Bob Yanis always wanted to get into the the synth thing and get mm-hmm. SIDs into synthesizers, but it didn't really work out. So he just went and formed his own, co-founded his own company in Sonic to do precisely that. So yeah, and 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 the 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 one in Sonic uh, synthesizer essentially did have something that sounded very much like the SID or an enhanced SID running it. Yeah, well, if the the story of the story of the Bob Yannis chips is uh, is is quite interesting in that uh, you end up with one of his chips in the Apple II GS, uh-huh. uh huh, the ES five five zero three, I think, and um, that was also heavily under. It had some very weird features. I mean, it, it didn't have a lot in common with the SID chip, but it, you could see where he was coming from, and right. uh, it, it did have the ability to do esoteric synth things that no one ever used 
um, partly because Apple was a really bad. Uh, 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 there was a gateway um, to the, a gateway to using the chip. They couldn't. The speaker was only mono, even though the chip was stereo. Right. For instance, and um, you had to communicate with the chip through um, Apple's own API. You couldn't low-level drive it that much, as far as I, as far as I know. But also because apples were really expensive and the development was there wasn't the same thing that happened on the amiga where it democratized music um apple was always expensive and you had to even to get stereo i think out of it properly you had to buy another had to buy external hardware right right and I, I never never realized about that that was the gs the apple 2 gs yes huh um there, there's uh, one of the things that uh, that that's again in volume Two of the book, I think. The the chip was designed in eighty four, but only deployed in the two GS in eighty seven. Right. So it kind of skips volumes a little bit there. Um, in the end, most people ended up just playing, just um, Hawk bringing over um, tunes from other platforms. Mm-hmm. But there, there there was some pretty there was a tracker or two for it. But so it, it had like wavetable synthesis and some esoteric features and. But everyone really just used the sample playback. I mean, I mean, uh, bringing games, for example, from other platforms was a thing that that happened quite often. Think about heavy driving coming from the CS, ZX Spectrum to the C64, or Karnov, that was also a Spectrum conversion, or um, um, which uh, the yeah, Chase HQ was also horrible. ZX Spectrum conversion. So that was actually a thing sometimes back in the 80s to save money to convert whole games from the ZX Spectrum to the C64, and the uh, results were always horrible. There's there's a couple of interesting um, things about conversions in the book because we, we cover, you know, that the MSX had the AY chip. And the ST had the AY chip, and the Spectrum 128 had the AY chip. Mm. So you got a suspicious num- you got a suspicious number of conversions from the MS from the Spectrum to the MSX, where they they um, obviously it's the Z80 and the, no graphics chip on either machine. So right, the color clash problem. That's what it's famous for. Sometimes that was ported across, as far as I gather. But they also they also often didn't actually port the AY music. They they used the they ported the 48k Spectrum Beeper version. So you had a Spectrum port that both ran very slow and sounded rubbish. <laughs> okay, but, I didn't know that. But when you've got, um, especially in Spain, because the MSX um, the MSX scene was a bit bigger over there, so it was commercially worth porting stuff. But you also had the Atari ST, which had a variant of the AY, which is in volume two. But um, uh, some composers ported um, the, the frequency tables and the driver code straight straight across. Um, it's basically the music data and the note frequency with a different driver because it's a different CPU. Interesting um, that you that you mentioned Spain. Um, actually... I, I was aware of that. I interviewed once uh, Paco Portello, who um, was a Spanish pioneer encoder. He he um, he did the first cutscene in a in a computer game 
with mm. uh, Bugaboo the Flea. And he told me about the MSX and Spectrum and the conversion and stuff. Wait, 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 wait. slow down. I thought the first cutscene was was in um Pac-Man. I thought the first cutscene was in a different game. Wasn't that No, no, uh... it's it it is it is in Bugaboo the Flea. I Definitely. thought I, I thought it was one of the Maniac Mansion games or something. No, no, like no, that no, no, that was the first time Ro, Ro, um, Ron Gilbert coined the phrase cutscene. Oh, okay, that was okay, that. Okay. But the first game with cutscenes okay. was Bugaboo the Flea. Okay. I th- which I think was '84, if I'm not mistaken. You mean you, but you mean game, happened. you mean games with um, games on home computers because Pac-Man right. had cutscenes in 1980. Yes, but I mean yeah. on 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 computers, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. on home computers, yeah. Uh, Bugaboo the Flea, right? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. It was it was published in '83 um, by by Quicksilver. And then it was ported uh, to UK. And there it made the jump from MSX to Spectrum ZX, C64, and so forth. Um, and, and of, yeah. That's a lot of jumping, but you'd expect that for a flea, I guess. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I mean, if you mention the Spanish scene and MSX, I, I had to throw it in, um, especially because the interview I did with a Spanish translator because Paco Fortano just doesn't know Span as English. So mm-hmm. um, if, if anybody's interested into that, we will link to that interview. <laughs> yeah. But um, so the, um, there was the music uh, was converted often from like Tim Follen and David Whitaker, for instance, converted the right. music directly. Uh, they they, they had, a diff- had to have a different driver. Because obviously it's Z80 versus 68,000, but they use exactly the same music data and note frequency table. Mm-hmm. And what that means is, because the AY on the uh, on the spectrum runs slightly slower than the ST, you can tell when this has happened because the ST version sounds slightly higher in pitch and more stressed. Yeah. Hmm. But but that but that is also the case with later games like uh, when Super Mario Bros was was ported actually to the Mega Drive some years prior to today um, that that also happened because they they really reused the same tones and instruments but since the Mega Drive had different capability uh, capabilities it sounded mm-hmm. different yeah. That um, is actually something. Yeah. Hmm. So, back to the um, back to yeah. the the book and sound chip. Yeah, we we've, we've gotten way off off topic. Yes. We're yeah, well, about, that's, we're talking that's, about the book. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's it's interesting because most people don't talk about sound chips and conversions from one game and one system from another. Um, so uh, this sound chip focus is totally new. People mostly co- uh, focus on on graphics and stuff, but uh, I've yeah. never heard about books that focus on sound chips. So no, this is the first one, right? Um, right. And it, it's um, the reason I found it interesting when I started looking into it is because it's as much a story of of people and the the um, people and companies and business decisions and the development of gaming. For instance, though. 
when when um, General Instrument were first uh, marketing the AY chip, um, they marketed it as an optional extra to a computer and just advertised it as for sound. Um, that's probably one of the reasons they didn't um, put a, a slightly more, slightly better frequency register into it. Um, Interesting. And that they had no idea what it was going to come. And eventually, what happened is Mattel came along and essentially converted their reference design into the Intellivision, and then it got started from there. Hmm. And then Texas Instruments felt like they had to compete, and so <laughs> they produced their their. They'd already produced the chip in Space Invaders, which was the 76477. Anyway, um, and that um, they designed that at the same in sort of conjunction with Tato to go in the machine, but it only powered the UFO noise, and it was a completely analog chip, so it was really difficult to control on a computer. There was only one computer that put that chip in, which was the Swedish ABC80, I think. <laughs> or the Luxor. Um, so you've got a, a chip that was in Space Invaders that was just doing the UFO and all the other sounds, which had, all had their own volume knobs. So if you're an arcade operator, you could actually adjust each of the sounds individually. Um, and then later on, there was the digital chip, which was the one that went went, went into the BBC Micro, the ColecoVision, and um, the, the Master System. Yeah. Hmm. But um, and and the and the master system sound chip I think was this um, Sex, Texas Instruments one if I'm not mistaken. Or yeah, yeah, the, oh, yes, the, okay. the, the, the that that one that, that had um, three voices and one clanky noise channel. Right, right. Whereas the AY three had three voices and any of them could have noise mixed with them, but there was only three voices. And the pinouts on that could all be taken individually. So you could technically make stereo, but no one ever did. The Spectrum just mixed the sound, mashed the sounds together coming out of the chip and shoved them off somewhere. Mm. Um, and the, 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 um, the, the biggest, the, the, the most impressive chip probably during that period. I mean, the AY was not impressive as such, but it was used impressively later. The most impressive chip was actually the Namco um, WSG chip that was in Pac-Man, because that was a wavetable chip that had like tiny samples, and not it wasn't they weren't wave they weren't oscillators generating mathematical waveforms. They were actually it had that's why no one had heard anything like it because the, all the samples were kind of like hand drawn. Right. Right. Um, so the, the siren at the background of it is a triangle wave. Nothing had ever done a triangle wave before Namco's WSG, except when they decided some of the discrete circuitry in, say, Galaxian. Discrete circuitry being when they just basically put some resistors and electronics on the board to create a particular sound, rather mm. than have a, a chip which was a, a programmable sound generator. Right, right. Wow, yeah. Oh. Well, it must have been many, many years, Chris, to, to gain this knowledge about the sound chips of all the systems and stuff. Not really. I started in January. <laughs> <laughs> really? Huh? Well, what happened is I came, I, 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 
I've got ongoing projects that I need to finish, but I've basically come to the end of my remix, Commodore 64 remix bucket list of things to do. I've done the orchestra thing, I've done the Rob Hubbard thing, I've done everything else. And it was time to, um, and it was time to spread the wings a little bit and see what else was out there. Well, mm -hmm. once you've done this sort of thing, Sid looks a lot smaller than it did. But it's, hmm. it's also nice to see the history of, of, of the chips and where, where Sid was, was actually truly special. But it wasn't the only chip that was, uh, that was special at the time. There's a much more obscure chip called the CEM3394, which was in ballet Sente machines. And it's basically a synthesizer on a chip, a proper oh. synthesizer on a chip. And it can do the same waveforms as Sid can. Except it's you only get one voice per chip, so people so the the Bally system had six of them, so you had like um, six three oscillator synthesizers, and in the end people programmed them and they sounded just like Sid anyway. So yeah. that's that really, um, and had and because it couldn't do noise, they had to stick another noise generator in. Um, and but that was a that was an that was a, a nice chip that was fully analog. And they had to they had to put another chip on the board that um, was an analog to digital controller chip, so that the the CPU didn't actually have to think in terms of volts, but it, it, but in terms of like zeros and ones. Right, right. They yeah, were I'm using a lot of synthesizers, weren't they? Yeah, I mean the Curtis chips were in quite a few synthesizers. Yeah, there's they they there, there were a couple of in, a couple of other interesting chips which were had had come over from home organs. So you've got arcade games in, uh, sounding like home organs did. <laughs> there was there was one where you could like play every single note at once if you wanted to. That was like fourteen note polyphony, but you wouldn't yeah. want to because that would sound mm. horrible. <laughs> so the, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you're not only thinking technically, you're thinking musically. And mm -hmm. um, in terms of like quality of soundtracks, I think it took uh, took a while for soundtracks to become pretty. Um, to become chunky and long. It's no wonder Outrun went down so well because that was one of the first ones that had the. Uh, that, but you know the stuff Atari was doing with Marble Madness and yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, 720, which is when they were had when they had the eight voices and they were determined to use them. Right. It reminds, yeah. it reminds me, and we'll, we'll chop this part out. I saw a a, a, um, a comic one time where. You know, a kid, a dad is describing heaven to his kid, and he's like, "Oh, it's it's the best. All the base, all the best bass players in history are there. You know, uh, McCartney and, and 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 this guy, the guy from the Who, and you know, all these people are all there, and they're all playing bass at the same time. And the kid's like, "Wow, what's that sound like?" And the father's like, "Absolute shit." Well, <laughs> uh, well, we should we should also mention we have a co-author called Andrew Legend, right? If if Andrew that is how it's he, he's, okay. He, he's a he's a historian of uh, of, of games and uh, an expert on the uh, his well his favorite um, things are the Spectrum and the SNES. Mm. Oh, you also say SNES. Oh God, he said oh the SNES. God. Damn it all. The SNES, like like a YouTuber. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. No, we've had we've had an internal argument over whether it's the SNES or the or the Super NES. In in, yeah. in the U.S., we usually just call it the Super NES. Yeah, right. 
Oh. Well, the Super Nintendo. Yeah, Super Nintendo. Yeah, but apparently, and we never called the the original Nintendo. It was just either Nintendo or the NES. It was never the NES. So. Yeah, well, in Germany we said NES, but we never said yeah. NES. Well, that, 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 that had an interesting interesting but infuriating sound chip that was really difficult to use. Really? Not, you you not mean that. you mean the polygon thing? The, the, no, the, the Super Nintendo. It had to, the, the audio chip was like a coprocessor. So at ah, the beginning okay. of the game, the, the game had to... Normally what was happening in the game is you'd have the game loaded and then the game would access the sound chip directly and produce sounds. But mm. in this case, the, the job of the bootloader in the game was to actually to upload data to the audio chip which was a complete program so you'd have 64, oh, 64k ram on the on the snes chip uh, which is the spc 700 but that had to be contained the samples that you were using and it was basically just sample playback yeah that's but what people, i wanted to say it's not a synthesizer it's more sample playback yeah yeah, and but that 64K also had to contain the driver data as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and um, the, it was more, more difficult because later on there were drivers that could swap out the sounds um, dynamically without causing a pause, but not many of them had that. Um, uh, the, the, the game's got some nice... Uh, the books... The, this is uh, volume three, I think, now. Um, has some great information from Alistair Brimble about how that was done. Um, and uh, he, he goes into quite... He, he was a Nintendo authorized um, authorized developer, and there were very few of those in the West at the time. So uh, mm. he, he he gives us some uh, good information about us, as far as he could, given he's still on, probably under Nintendo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Non-disclosure agreements. Um, so yeah, it was... Uh, it was um, it was a sound chip that was actually called um, Nintendo SSMP, according um, to Wikipedia. That was well, what the sound uh, the, chip was called. The, the, the Super Nintendo's chip was officially the SPC 700. But, uh, you know, these chips get, get lots of different names. Like okay. the like the one in the the one in the Saturn was called the SCSP or something, but also mm. it had a Yamaha name, uh, YMF two nine two F I think. Um, yeah, the uh, the uh, an interesting quirk is that um, the PlayStation's uh, sound processor was done by the same guy who did the Super Nintendo's sound processor. Oh, didn't know that. Okay. Except with a lot more memory. Um, <laughs> of course. The, as I said, there was a direct line of a direct line of descendants. To, uh, of course, they weren't identical because technology goes on. But uh, uh, the, that's volume that goes into volume four, which actually has a, a fair amount of information from Jason Page, of, uh, who was at Sony at the time and writing their demo discs. Yeah, about, Jason uh, Page also did music for the Z64 for 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 games. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he was at Sony, but also at Graph Gold doing the Amiga Iridium 2, uh, some some C64 music, yeah, uh, in, yeah. The, in the late 90s. Right. Yeah, he's been, I've, I've, I've been able to draw on my celebrity friends to... Uh, <laughs> to Whoa! Uh, like <laughs> like uh, Graham, Graham Norgate gave me some interesting information about the Nintendo 64, for instance, and about how they, um, 
how they they worked out how could how they could use Og on the GameCube instead of Nintendo's stupidly custom ADPCM format. Well, back in the day, you never knew what was best. You just did what you think was right. Or what the developers' uh, spec sheets told you you had to do. So Sony had uh, Sony had standards and Nintendo had standards, so they tended to tell you what to do. Yeah, but 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 I was I was interviewing uh, Stella uh, um, Stella de Sous, for example, who did uh, Game Boy Color music and Game Boy Advance music, and he said all those sheets from Nintendo were crap. He dumped that and did did his music on an Amiga and just wrote a converter instead. That was quite common. That that happened a lot on the Archimedes as well. Yeah. Uh, the, most, most Archimedes music basically sounds like Amiga music. Mm. And the stuff that doesn't sound like Amiga music sounds terrible because it's done <laughs> by someone who didn't know, who, who had to write a driver from scratch. Mm. Platform, that Interesting platform. thing is, and I let I let that in. He said he also got the he also got the Game Boy Color sound system, um, the uh, producing system from Factor Five, mm-hmm. and that's interesting because everybody is loving Factor Five because you know Tarek and Star Wars games, all those things they did. But he said the Game Boy Color sound system, they, they, um, the composing system they sold was total crap. I was like, ooh, okay. Well, they, they did, they did write. Uh, it was Software Creations, I think, who, who rescued the, um, who rescued the Nintendo 64 people by releasing a really good, um, really good dev system. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Nintendo 64 was a very weird. Uh, it, it was based, it, it had the, the main CPU and then a processor which was devoted to graphics and, and video. So graphics of video and audio. But if you use the audio, it was at the expense of the video and vice versa. Right. So Factor Five, Factor Five's in the system on the Nintendo 64 kept a, a track of the CPU on both and kind of swapped loads. Um, but uh, they they advertised it when it came out as like having a hundred hundred sounds at once, which is fine as long as you just want to listen to sounds and don't want to see anything. So uh, Graham Norgate, he did um, Goldeneye and Time Splitters. Um, he he said that um, that taught him to uh, actually test the chip out before believing any of the manufacturer's technical boasts. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you had some problems back then because, um, as I learned, people didn't even know about the differences of the set chips, you know, or the that that several Game Boy revisions, hardware revisions, would sound different, you know. Those mm-hmm. info people back then didn't have, you know. No, no, there was. I guess you could never get that. You could never. Sorry, hang on. Okay, you could never get that many people in the same place. Right. Uh, not that. Not that. Sorry, you could never get that many computers in the same place, so you could test them out. Even, even um, your average software house that had like ten C sixty fours that might not cover the whole range of right. possibilities. And, um, and if you and if you go back to the years 83, 84, 
they even didn't know about the differences of the NTSC and Paul timing for the music. So, oh, yes, some that, people that, still don't. Yeah. I wonder if I, I wonder if um, American users had like a, a much more a much more stressed uh, yes much more stressed approach to Commodore sixty four music. Well, it, you know what it was. It was um, I grew up hearing C sixty four music as it was supposed to sound, and then when um, you know after I had stopped using the C sixty four as as my primary machine, and I got an emulator and had it, and you know they they defaulted to PAL mode, so you could actually hear you know the the, the stuff as it was. Everything was so much. Everything was too slow. Like every game was too easy because I had gotten used to playing it at like, you know, slightly faster, and the music was just wrong, because because I was used to hearing it just that much quicker. Yeah, you know, for like, us it's like, actually the opposite. Prime example would be summer games or California games or stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, now did you play? You played them slower, right? Yes, yeah, and and also the music slower. And also, yeah, so, mentioned was slow, and Zach so it's probably was slow. well, they were they were slow just in general. But but Calif but, but but like winter and summer games and stuff that may have made it. Did that make it easier for you to play it slower? No, I mean, what what mostly the companies did is actually fixing the uh, the speed of the graphics and the game itself. So, for example, our Zach McCracken, our Maniac Mansion would run at the same speed as the American one, as they would change the synchronization of the graphics, mm. but the music would be slower. Oh, okay. And okay. except for games where you can't because you don't have enough resources. For example, Test Drive, the whole Test Drive series was totally slow in Europe. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, how can you play a racing game like this? It's so slow. Well, it was but, slow in the US too. I mean, it's just yes. slow. But but still, in the US, it was 25% faster. So it was still a way better experience, you know? Yeah, I suppose, but it was still, yeah. it was still pretty slow. It's nothing like playing it with a super CPU or something. Right, yeah, but with a super CPU, only could play Test Drive 1 because the other ones used illegal opcodes mm. that would crash the super CPU. But yes, it's definitely one of my favorite usages of the super CPU to play Test Drive 1. And they, they, mm -hmm. they, and, and they were smart enough in 87 to have a frame rate um, limit, limitation yes. coded into it. Yeah. Which was very much foresight for 87. Yeah, that was. Because many, many games don't have that, like Mercenary or Stunt Car Racer, and they would run too too fast on a super CPU. Yeah. But um, a test drive had a had a limitation of frame rate. Right, right. Right. I see you just sent an, yes. uh, a comic. Yes, that's that was the one that I mentioned before. Okay. We'll cut this part out again. Well, we could leave it in. Why not? Give props to OneGiantHand.com. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's an interesting topic. It never, never spoke about sound chips so much, except, of course, if I was um, talking to a composer, but never about the range. Yeah. Well, I, you know, a lot of the composers, you know, um, your, um, 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 um. 
Dave Lowe and whatnot, you know, he he it would did, compose he a lot. Yeah. yeah, he would compose separately on each one so that it would sound good on each one. Same thing, I believe, with with your own tell. You know, if he did two different if you know, if he did music on two different machines, he would compose it for those machines and not just convert it over, you know, and 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 have it sound weird. Uh, he, he was um, him and him and Tim Follin mm-hmm. are two of the two of the people who have cracked the the Nintendo um, chip music fan base. Yes, yes. Um, especially Tim. I mean, his stuff is his stuff is the junction, I think, between Western chip music and Eastern chip music, far right, Eastern chip right. music. And we've, we've got a um, in volume. Too, I think we've got a, a, a nice discussion about um, a nice discussion about the difference between Japanese chip music and European chip music, such that um, and it, 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 it's also when you look at the Nintendo expansion cartridges where they started adding sound chips into the cartridges, mm-hmm. um, it all makes you realise that the 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 iconic sound of, of of chip music here is the the wibbled chords. Right, right. It's interesting uh, that the the Commodore sixty four, if it had had more voices, would never have sounded like that. I know. And the, the Nintendo games hardly ever sound like that because they don't like the they don't like the sound. Right, right. Not not everyone doesn't like the sound, and sometimes people get away with it. But, well, the thing, but the thing with the NAS is different because the the actual Famicom had more sound compatibilities. Um, well, it had more had, voice and stuff. But the NAS the, was the kind voice. of triplet. Yeah. You had the voice, the extra voice in the disc drive. Yes, and some and some and some composers actually quite some po- composers on the. Um, on the Famicom, would use that. No? Yeah, that we've we've got a list of the ones that did. Right, but actually, there's a hack for the NES. If you do some wiring, you can actually restore those voices. <laughs> well, if the cartridge is working in PAL. Right. Yeah. That's it, 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 when I looked at it. It seemed to me that. What they'd done when they turned the Famicom into the NES is they'd put the Famicom's expansion port at the bottom, the Famicom's cartridge port at the bottom, and turned it into an expansion port, and then put a fake oh, cartridge port for the what, NES. Is that what that thing was? Yeah, yeah. so it, I think it was only used to do Telnet to, to do Twitter <laughs> something. Nothing was ever released for it. But yeah, there was always that little thing that you could take the little cap off, and there was a little port at the bottom. And I had never, never, never noticed. Um, what actually, that was. actually, uh, it's not entirely true. There is, there is, um, there is a tester unit that actually utilized that port. That's what I assumed it was for. For, 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 report, for repair services and stuff, you know? But it seems so, to me that because that port has the audio has, has the audio connector to the audio chip that the Famicom had, but the Nest didn't, it seems like it's, it's just repurposing the Famicom cartridge hardware. Perhaps. Or, uh, perhaps. Cartridge slot. Perhaps. I can't prove it. <laughs> yeah, but but Nintendo did did weird stuff. 
for example, for the American market, the second version of the NS, the top loader, is actually worse from the graphic uh, perspective because they removed the composite connectors. Mm. And it, the top loader NAS, those are the newer NAS on the American market, only has RF. So you only have analog antenna output, which is horrible, which is horrible. Yeah. yeah. And we would think, why would you re-release a console, improve the connector problems, but get rid of the better um, uh, video? Yeah, because of cost reduction. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It was interesting how many how many cartridges had the expansion chips on them, given the given the focus on cost reduction. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean that's that's actually the thing. It depends really on the company and the publisher and stuff. I mean, I mean there there is there are stories on the internet uh, how another world was con converted to Super Nintendo, and the coder wrote. That, sh that the game was crappy because she didn't get the Super FX strap and she didn't get more RAM. So she had to, to do with too, too little resources to convert mm -hmm. the game to the Super Nintendo. Fair enough. Yeah. But then... Well, yeah, that's, that's it. Sometimes you have to work with what you don't have. Yeah, and some people were able to get decent sounds out of out of things. Like I remember um, reading somewhere how much uh, uh, your own was able to um, make the RoboCop theme or RoboCop Two or whatever it is he did um, sound. RoboCop Three. RoboCop Three. Yeah, like, yeah. His 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 NES version sounds almost exactly like the C sixty four version. No, it's not true. It's not true. Um, um, no, it doesn't sound exactly like that because it doesn't have the melody voice. Right, because, right. But, because but it's, it's damn close. It's damn close. Nah, not 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 really. Yeah. Not really. What he did instead, what he did instead is for the NES version, he more focused on the bass, so yeah. you have more bass. But the sound, however, is not close to the '64 version at all. No, that's not true. At least not for the intro. Not like, not like it sounds like a sixty-four, but it's it, it was a, a a solid conversion of it that yeah, that captured captured a lot of the 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 oomph of the Sid version. Well, no, the the that's exactly the point. The Sid version had no oomph. The Sid. What are you talking about? The Sid version had no oomph. No, no, the Sid version had no oomph. I mean, no, they were more. It was more melodic, but it wasn't. It didn't have bass as much. But the NS version was the one with much more bass. We're gonna have to uh, agree to disagree on this one. No, I mean look it up on YouTube. If you, you probably remember it wrong, you can look it up and compare it. You will see that I'm right. <laughs> I I know well, this one because I got it. I got it import. I got it imported from Italy, the NTC version, just because of the music. Because the European version plays too slow. Which is silly, but that's actually true. The difference between the the differences between the NES and the SID chip is actually pretty um, in the, pretty representative of the difference between European and Japanese chip music as well, because mm -hmm. the the NES had five voices, had right. a two two pulse wave 
one triangle, noise, and the sample channel. And uh, that was the first sound chip, as far as I could come across, that actually featured some variant of PCM. Because hmm. the Namco one had wavetable, of course. I mean, in the home computers, PC ADPCM chips like the MSM5205 were already coming out in the arcades around about 1981. But they were, met, they were actually marketed as speech synthesis chips. Hmm. But in the end, people just used them to play drum parts and, and other stuff. One of the interesting things about the that I did in the book is um, you know that MAME. Sure, sure, we know MAME. Yeah, MAME allows you to um, turn down the volume of the sound chips in yes. the machine individually, and it's a fascinating experience to play an arcade game and then see which chip is doing which sounds. And I, to save people the bother, I went through the ones we were covering and actually um, list which parts were done by which chip. Wow. Um, when it comes to multi-chip systems, I mean, the, the first multi, the biggest multi-chip system I came across on the, on the first volume was Gyrus, hmm. which had five AY chips. Now, that's just, <laughs> that's devotion. Yeah, that's... Yeah. And uh, talking of speech synthesis, we also cover in volume one home speech synthesis and arcade speech synthesis. So that kind of mm -hmm. goes out of the date range a little bit because the speech synthesis covers things like Suicide Express on the Commodore 64, Indiana Jones Temple of Doom in the arcade. Ghostbusters! Ghostbusters. And Ghostbusters, this is the story of the, the nuclear physicist who. Uh, did the speech in Berserk for $1,000 a word in his spare time. and then I know, yes. <laughs> I, I interviewed Forrest Moser, who, Excellent. Who, who invented speech synthesis. Yeah. Well, Texas Instruments invented it, really. He just invented a variant of it. What do you mean? Um, he just, he did what? Williams released, was released, released their HC chip, 55516, I think, in before Berserk was uh, was uh, created. Hmm. But then I guess uh, Forrest did the patenting back in 77, so yes, I guess he probably did have some claim to that. Yeah, he is he is seen hmm. as the in inventor. I mean, he actually he actually told me uh, stories of how he how he invented the first speaking calculator and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first elevator um, for <laughs> blind people that speaks, you know, and, and and actually to test it, he would he would like uh, he would like a few hours a day. He would actually go up and down to make sure it works and stuff. I was like, oh my god, that's tedious. That's tedious work, you know. Um, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> so so, uh, so that the and the the home speech synthesis was mostly about um, the the. Um, limited phrase things they put into the there has an option for the Intellivision and uh, an option for the Odyssey but uh, also the current speech synthesis on the spectrum and the uh, and Sam on the uh, on the on multiple platforms actually but only got into games on the C64 I think there's a brief you, you, you mean you mean you mean Sam Sam yes yeah, but but Zen was originally a system for blind people to read books and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
It's amazing that how chips started out one way and became and, and ended up doing something entirely different. Yeah, yeah. It's but, it's uh, interesting. Yeah. The, the first the first chip in the arcades which did speech was the Williams HC five 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 one six, which was in a pinball machine called Gorgar, and was then yeah. used for a phenomenally long period of time into the nineties to do the speech synthesis and things like NARC and uh, Smash TV. So that that's I, I'm I'm really impressed with how how um, the the emulation doesn't do it justice. I think that chip it's kind of like analog and handcrafted and stuff. Yeah, that's the problem with the emulation. The more analog the sound chip is, the harder it is to emulate it. Oh yeah, yeah. They, they, it messes. Emulation messes up a fair few of them, but you can still get the gist. I think mm. they, they, the, the Ballyastricate, Ballyastricate sound chips are interesting. Um, that, that, uh, that's the one that ended up in the arcades in Gorf hmm. and Wizard of War. I mean, I mean, the thing is, the thing is, there will be a time and date where there will only be emulation and no really physical sound chips anymore. The hell you say? <laughs> yeah, there'll always be some, but I'm grateful for the emulation. Frankly, and Mame made made writing the the books a lot easier because I, I was <laughs> able to I was able to uh, mine the metadata to create right. a master list of which machines use which chips. Right. Which I could then use both to find out which chips I should be writing about, and also to um, isolate which games should be uh, were ideal specimens to put a picture of in that section. Mm. So, although the, the, although all this sounds really technical, sound chip wise, and indeed there are technical sections. Um, about 80% of the book is screenshots, mini music reviews, and links to YouTube, to playlists and long plays. <laughs> so it's like, a, so it's and it's a it's a very portable book. It's like 15 centimeter. It's about the same size as a seven-inch single, basically, slightly smaller, six inches. I wonder, did you already finish all four volumes, or just volume one for now? I wrote the content for all four. Uh, volume one is the only one that's been laid up so far. Okay. But the content was finished for all four because I wrote them all as. Remember, I wrote them all as one book. Right. That's what <laughs> that's yeah, right, right. right. But but you are not selling selling all four volumes at once. You are going at one after another. Yeah. So as advised, that was the best way. Yes, because otherwise I would need a second job for all the other stuff I would need to buy. <laughs> well, the, 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 the book is only £15, so it's, a, yeah. it's an impulse buy. <laughs> yeah, but, but if you buy all four of them at once... Then it wouldn't be an impulse buy anymore, no. Right, that's the thing. Right. Ma Martin Galway's favourite observation is that uh, the, book is, the book will be very good for people who want to go to the toilet and have some entertainment. Nice, they, yeah. They can go to the toilet, sit down, read the book, bring out their mobile phone, scan in a QR code, and then listen to a YouTube thing. This might cause, um, in, in later volumes, some of the playlists it links to are like an hour long, so that might result in some very long stays in the toilet. Nice. Yeah, well, I mean, there, there are situations where people couldn't get off the toilet anymore, but let's not talk <laughs> about that. Um, sure. Yeah. Well, that's that's uh, that's really interesting. That's uh, yeah. amazing. I mean, 
a lot of book stories lately. So I, I saw um, you already offer it for buying it via Chris Wilkins, actually. And it seems to be like ki kind of a crowdfunding to cover yes, the is. printing costs or something. Yeah, that's it, to cover the printing costs. And after that, it, uh, after, after the end of that, it'll just go to normal ordering. Mm. So, so it's an alternative to Kickstarter and Indiegogo. It's kind of yes. a mix, mixed bag. Well, it, it didn't feel right doing another all singing, all dancing Kickstarter. Um, because I've still got um, another book to write, which is the Rob Hubbard one, uh, which is already 300 pages in Google Drive. So that's scaring me a little. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and other stuff to fulfill. So it didn't feel right going back to people. Um, asking for more money and uh, Chris Wilkins is, is a great bookseller and he's got it all, he's got it going on he's got he, he knows who to who to use to press this and he's got the space for the when the books come and can right. and stuff. Yes. Yes. All, all that all that stuff which people never see but which is a complete utter pain in the ass I know I know I know Chris Wilkins yeah I worked with him together for the Oliver Twins game releases mm -hmm. doing some testing so I remember that bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah so that's um, it, it. Seemed like a good idea. Plus, the, he, he released the little book of Spectrum, and uh, that's that's the template we used for this. So the two Chris's worked together on this one. Nice. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, I, I, I sell the digital version at c64audio.com on my own, and that's mostly because um, for tax reasons. In the sense of like books are VAT zero rated in the UK, but as soon as you stick a anything on it which is digital or CD or whatever, suddenly it's taxable. So <laughs> it's a really bad idea to add extras to books. Um, mm. in, in, you, you could you know you add one little thing and suddenly it's 20% more expensive. Mm. So um, I'm quite happy selling the digital version, which is finished, so people can already buy the PDF. And um, it's and read it from cover to cover. Well, I al I already pre-ordered the physical one, so I hope it's good. <laughs> well, I can send you the digital one now. I know you've done that. And <laughs> anyone, anyone who did order the pre pre-order the hardback is is welcome to ask me for um, uh, a free copy of the digital one because so it's so it's easier to click on the YouTube links on the on the playlist links. On the digital one, yes, yes. Yeah. All, all the all the QR codes are hyperlinks as well. So. Um, oh, that, that... oh, nice, nice. So I can actually use my camera on the book and scan the QR code. You can, but if you're using the PDF, it's easy to just click. Nice, nice. Um, but Very people, thoughtful you've, of you. Very you've got the option. Nice, nice. And yeah. it, it makes the it makes reading the book a very much more interactive experience. You could just flick through it. See a, see a game you like, oh, I haven't seen that for ages. I wonder how it sounds again. And go through, like Spy Hunter, for instance. And go back to, yeah, how did, how did that work? Um, well, I'm an old fart. I like paper, I must admit. Sure. And that, yeah. that's, that, that's what the, the QR codes can be used for in the toilet. So right, if, if, right. If you hear more, more toilets with Spy Hunter coming out of them, <laughs> you, then, right, you know it's yeah. succeeded. Right. Having an iPhone or iPad holder in your toilet just for just for <laughs> the convenience of yeah. scanning QR codes out of out of um, uh, Zip books 
or um, Soundchip, Soundchip book, rather. Ra, yeah, ra, they, they, ra. All, all of the YouTube links are stored in a central database as opposed to hard-coded into the book, so we can um, so we can keep the list up to date over time. Wow. Wow. So very, very much thought went into this to make it perfect, I already hear. Nice. Oh, yeah. Nice, nice. So, so this 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 book spread over four volumes will be a groundbreaking kind of being the only four volumes book about sound chips. Yeah, yeah. There's there's been other books that are about chip music or the culture of chip music, but there hasn't been anything that basically just lists the chips, describes their features, tells right. fun facts and stories about them, and then it illustrates mm. the games that contained them yeah uh, the, so uh, yeah it reminds it's, it's... me reminds me a bit of the, a bit of brian becknell who was groundbreaking the uh, computer computer books when he released the rise and fall of commodore on the edge in 2005 mm -hmm. that was one book of a kind i mean it really changed how we saw the um coming of the home computers because before before that at least here in germany you would be taught that all the home computer craze started with apple and nobody would mention commodore you know well that's right actually the um that, one of the reason one of the reason that com computer music took off in the end was the vic 20 Right. Okay. And that's that's because the VIC-20 forced the TI-994A and the Atari for the Atari 8-bit series to reduce drastically in price to compete, which meant Didn't it got into that. more homes. Didn't know mm. that. Okay. Interesting. And, and the VIC-20 sound chip is fascinating. It's Bob Yannis's first chip, and um, it's got some very weird features. Like each of the three voices has a different note range. You've got bass, treble, uh, so treble, alto, tenor. I think four voices. Hmm. No, three. Anyway, and uh, the noise, uh, the, the the waveform itself is supposed to be a square wave, but actually looks like a slightly pointy sine wave. And it's the noise is done in a completely different way to every other single chip. Most thing, most chips do the noise in a certain way. So that if you can hear a pitch, it's because of a notch in the sound as opposed to a peak. But the VIC-20 just takes the frequency you're trying to play and just adds randomness to it. But yeah, it's a noise, honest. <laughs> so it sounds like a, it, 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 it switches from going do to <laughs> And it's, it's no, no other computer. In the book, we've, we've, we've got spectrograms that actually show the differences between the various noises and a link to a video where you can hear them. And it's, it's the, the difference in noise waveforms between computers is quite dramatic and kind of explains why the drums that people were doing sounded a certain way. The AY is very hissy, the SN is very clacky, the SID is probably the most flexible noise. And then you've got the grindy TED and the even more grindy uh, Atari 2600. What was the sound chip in the VIC-20 called? It's the MOS 6560, I think. Ah. Uh, so, catchy. 
So it didn't uh, have well, it didn't I, have a sound like Sid or no, Paul no, no. Or it, it, was a it, was, it was part of the graphics chip. It was had had its own ah, okay. corner. Similar to the similar to how they did the TED. The TED also did graphics and sound. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the Vic one was, uh, but uh, the Vic was uh, it was underused. But that was because again people hadn't really heard examples of soundtracks to copy from or take standards from. And, right, yeah. And no one had written the drivers and there wasn't enough memory anyway. And no one, writing a, writing a decent soundtrack wasn't a prerequisite to selling copies of the game. Right. would not really mention the music as a selling point of the game. That only happened a lot later. Right. And that's when, once music became a competitive thing, that's when even... Spectrum Beeper games had to start upping their game. That must have been happened because of Flight Simulator 2, right? The engine noises of the plane and stuff. <laughs> nah, that was. They were pretty joke. good. They were pretty good. Yeah. Are they? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know myself. I didn't come across that. Um, what, oh, what? You, you never played Flight Simulator 2? Oh, shame on you. I know, right? Oh. So. Well, there's no music. It's just, it's just. <laughs> one, one of the other interest, uh, or we, we cheated a bit in the book in that we've got a section on beeper tunes on the spectrum. Oh. Um, including the ones where the the beeper was used to play multi-channel music. I mean, I mean, there are some prime examples. I mean, think, think of uh, Zach McCracken for the PC speaker. They even got the snoring sound of the intro correct. I was totally fascinated, <laughs> you know. Well, if if you give any computers a computer programmer uh, something that does on/off, all they see is a waveform that hasn't happened yet. Right. Um, but we've actually got a quite. We've actually got a really good article by Mike Clark, who worked at Psygnosis. Oh yes, um, we know him. Uh, he, he's done us a great article on sample playback through speakers. And, right. Uh, what, uh, the 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 key to it is that it, uh, if you imagine if you imagine um, a, a speaker could be on or off, right? Right. But it can't be on and on or off instantly. It has to travel through space to do it. There's a delay, yes. There's a delay, and uh, and if you can time it right, you can make the speaker not go the whole way. <laughs> and right. that's the key to being able to generate a full waveform when you've only got zeros and ones. The 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 the, the example he gives is Flappy Bird. You've got you if you press the button, it's a one. If you're off the thing, it's a, a zero. Now, if you've got gravity, that's actually performing the same function as a what's called a low-pass filter. It's providing resistance. Hmm. And, so, and so you can cover the whole range of the screen by pressing zeros and ones with appropriate timing. Hmm. Ah. And that's how it was, that's how Mike explained it. I learned a lot today about sound chips. I didn't know that. Yeah. And there's loads more. For, there's a fun fact and a New fact you didn't know on every single page of this book. How many pages? Um, first volume, 326. Wow. <laughs> but uh, as I say, 80% of it is screenshots. So yeah, basically right. you get a nice information dump, and then the brain gets some nice pictures to look at and some, some short, very short reviews. The reviews are almost zen, 
so that they don't require a lot of your mental attention to kind of take in what they're saying. No one has to read mountains of text if they don't want to. Right. It doesn't distract you from the sound chip knowledge. No, so you get the sound chip knowledge and then you get, oh, some nice relaxation and then you're ready to learn about another chip afterwards. Or you can just delve in at any time, find a chip you like, which is probably how mm -hmm. most people would do it. They just go to their favorite sound chip first and read that and then go further afield and maybe check out a, a new sound chip like the Ballyastricade or the, the A244 that's in the Odyssey or uh, some of the more obscure ones. Uh, just uh, some side information. When we mentioned uh, Boogaboo the Flea uh, from 83, it actually won a few prizes for worst sound uh, soundtrack of a computer game in 83. <laughs> so, uh, quite a lot of competition back in 1983. Yeah, right. But it's, it's one of the worst, at least on the Commodore 64. But you have to know that the Spanish uh, designers were, um, were uh, physics teachers in university. And the game was actually just having a physics uh, calculation. Well, and then putting it into a computer game. That is how it all started. So you can't blame them for bad music. It was not their main goal. Shit. Well, there weren't a lot of, I mean, the computer musician back in for quite a long while, certainly through the, to certainly through volume one, computer musician wasn't a job. Right, right. right. And uh, the, the, the one of the uh, two of the first computer musicians that were hired in the West were Earl Vickers for Atari, who's actually right. also been, um, he, he was, um, his, his notable achievements include Tron converting the music from the film for the Tron game. Um, and a lot of the, the iconic Atari stuff like um, is in the background of like 720 and the Star Wars uh, coin ops. But also Fred Gray, when he joined Imagine, who, and Imagine were quite ahead of the curve on that one by hiring someone to do the music. I guess they just wanted to be able to boast they hired someone to do the music. Well, where, where can people find your book? Um, I don't have a URL handy. Oh, well, they can find it. If they go to c64audio.com forward slash little books, um, then the, there's a link to, you can buy the digital file and there's a link to the hardback page. Which leads okay. then to Chris, to Chris Wilkins. Yes. Nice. nice. Oh, we, okay. we, went over, we went over 200 pre-orders today, which is 50%. So that was nice. nice. That's nice. So the Excellent. printing... Printing costs will be covered almost. It looks like it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there will be much more pre-orders. Yeah, and the thing is, when all four volumes exist and there's a slipcase, then people will be like buying the volume they like and then liking the book and hopefully buying the previous volumes. Yeah. Because they feel like to collect the set and also because it's interesting. It yeah. is. It's, a, it's an entirely new way of experiencing. It's like a giant YouTube illustrated playlist. Right. And I mean, of course I definitely. It's arcade games. Right. I definitely, I definitely need some some enjoyment book while I'm taking a dump each morning. So. <laughs> okay, you take it in, find the game you like, you scan it in, and you can you can watch a long play or a playlist. Nice, nice. Even the arcade Alrighty. games. Alrighty. Nice. Wonderful. Nice. Yes. Yeah, Chris. So uh, we will put a link to all of that in the description below. Definitely, yeah. definitely.
Cool. Okay, so enjoy your to... enjoy your tea. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Talk to them. Thank you. Yeah. See you later, right, thank, guys. Thank you. See you. Bye bye. Bye.